This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week we've got another message from our Acts of the Apostles series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. I want to ask you a question as we jump right into my message for today. Okay, here's the question. When you're going through something difficult in life, a crisis perhaps, how do you pray if you pray at all? Like, what do you pray for? What do you ask God to do for you? And what kinds of needs do you ask him to meet? That's the question. When you're going through something difficult in life, a crisis of some kind, how is it that you pray if praying is something that you do at all? Well, I imagine if you're at all like me that you probably pray for God to take whatever the problem or whatever the difficulty or whatever the crisis is away from you, right? Whether it be to bring healing when there is sickness or reconciliation and restoration of a relationship where there's conflict or financial provision when there's been some sort of expense that you weren't expecting or clarity when things are unclear and you don't know what to do or simply to bring an end to the pain and the suffering that you and those that you love are experiencing. Typically, this is how we pray when facing a crisis or difficulty of some kind, isn't it? We ask God to take it away from us, to remove the obstacle and to silence the opposition and basically just to make everything better again. And now I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with praying that way. In fact, it's often a good way to pray, to ask God to provide for us and to meet our needs and to heal and restore and so on and so forth. It can be a good and healthy way to pray. And scripture is clear that God longs for us to pray this way, to bring all of our our cares and concerns and anxieties before him and to ask him to meet our needs. It's a good way to pray. And yet, interestingly, As we look at the story of the early church in the book of Acts and how it is that they prayed when they faced crisis and difficulty, this is just something we don't see from them. They did not pray the way that you or I may have prayed had we been there with them, at least not in the passage that we're going to be looking at here today in Acts 4. Last week, we jumped back into this series in the book of Acts after taking a bit of a break, and we turned our attention again to this amazing story of what God did in and through the church as it was just getting started. And we looked again just briefly at the story of Peter and John as they healed this disabled beggar just outside the temple gates. It was the story we last looked at in November before we took a break uh, just before Advent, where Peter and John were asked for money by this blind beggar, but they didn't have money. Instead, they said, get up in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he did. He was healed and he celebrated loudly. And a crowd came near to see what on earth was going on. And Peter, seeing an opportunity, then got up and preached this impromptu sermon about Jesus and about how Jesus was the one that healed the man. And thousands of people came to faith in Jesus that day as a result. It was an amazing day for the church as God used Peter and John in a spectacular way. Sadly, though, the sermon that Peter preached, this impromptu message that he gave after the the miracle that took place that day, it was not well received by everybody who heard it. As the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish high council there in Jerusalem, the ones who were behind Jesus' crucifixion, which had happened only a few weeks prior to this story, they, they were quite concerned 
about some of the rhetoric that they were hearing in Peter as he preached this message. As they not only disagreed with some of Peter's theology, but they were also quite concerned about some of the political implications of it. As teaching about Jesus and his return and the coming kingdom there to earth could be viewed as a threat to the Roman Empire and something that could lead to a violent revolt if they didn't stop it, they thought. And so what did they do in response? Well, they arrested Peter and John for the night and they then commanded them to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, threatening them with violence if they were to continue. Which, just as a reminder, I, I talked about this in my message last week, this is the first time in the story of the church that we find any sort of hostility or opposition or difficulty towards the church as, as conflict is introduced to the story of the early church. And so how then did Peter and John respond to this conflict? Did they agree to follow the rules and to avoid preaching Jesus or, or at least tone it down a little bit in order to avoid getting into trouble? No, not at all. Look at their bold response to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4 verses 19 to 20 where it says this. Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything that we have seen and heard. Or in other words, threaten us all you want, imprison us, torture us, kill us even. It doesn't matter because we can't stop, won't stop telling people about Jesus no matter what you do to us. We're going to be faithful to the call of God in our lives no matter how difficult things are. Get that, that was their response, essentially, to the Sanhedrin. And that was the story that we looked at last week, which, by the way, is found in Acts 4, verses 1 through to 22, if you want to give it a read. This week, then, we pick up the story right after this very incident, right after Peter and John's run-in with the Sanhedrin, where they were threatened about what would happen to them if they didn't stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And we see now how the church as a whole responded and, and what they did when they got the report of these threats. Look with me at how the early church responded, looking first at verse 23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers, to, to the church, to their friends and to their family. And they told them what it was that the leading priests and elders had said, which no doubt was a very concerning and alarming report to hear. And so how then did the church respond? What is it that they did? Verse 24, when they heard the report, all the believers panicked. Is that what it says here, that all the believers panicked? Because that'd be a reasonable response, wouldn't it be, to freak out at least a little bit? I mean, honestly, that's probably how I would have reacted to this kind of report. Like they said, what? They're going to kill us? They're going to torture us? My goodness, this is terrible. Panic would have been a reasonable response. Or, or, or maybe if they didn't panic, maybe they would have at least talked some strategy, right? That Maybe they would have called a, a meeting of some kind and, and, and talked about what it was that they were going to do in response and what their plan was for dealing with the Sanhedrin. Maybe, maybe that's what they did. They called a board meeting, <laughs> perhaps. Or if not that, maybe they decided to comply, right? to back down and to listen to the Sanhedrin's demands, right? And in the spirit of wanting to protect their family and their loved ones, maybe they decided to tone down all the Jesus stuff as a result, which arguably might have been a reasonable response as well. But that's not what Luke, the author of Acts, says that they did here either. Instead, you know what it says that um, that they did in response to all this. You know how the church responded to this very concerning report from Peter and John? 
Well, Luke tells us that they prayed. That that's what they did. That they, that they prayed that all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. That was their holy reflex to opposition and crisis. It was not to panic or to plan or to comply, but it was to pray. And to call out to God together with one voice in prayer, asking God to do what only God could do. Prayer was their instinctive reflex, their holy reflex to opposition and to crisis. And you know, honestly, I find this so convicting. Because you know what my default response or instinctive reflex is to life's challenges and problems and crises, not that I've experienced anything close to what the early church experienced here, but do you know how I typically respond to life's problems? I I try to fix them myself, right? I I think, who can I talk to, or who can I convince, or who can I get to help me out, or who can I help or get to help me fix this problem? And I I try to fix it all myself. And you know what? There's, there's a time and place for that. Solving problems and using the brains that God gave us, that's a good thing to do as we seek hopefully God's wisdom as we do it. I, I just find for me anyway, that where my reflex should be prayer and looking to God to do what only he can do, I often look to myself instead and to what I think I can do to make things better and to fix things and to solve my problems myself. And and I basically just default to doing things my way instead of seeking God first in prayer. I wonder if you can relate at all to this. What's your reflex when crisis hits? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that the most important thing that we can do before we try to fix or solve anything is to pray to humbly come before God in prayer and to ask him to do what only he can do. It's what the early church did here. It was their holy reflex in the face of opposition and crisis. And it's what Jesus would invite us to do today too. It's to pray. And so how then did the church in Acts pray in this moment? And what specifically did they pray for here in the midst of this crisis? Did they pray for the threats to stop as you might expect them to? And did they ask God to protect them and to keep them safe? Did they pray that God would change the Sanhedrin's minds and soften their hearts and things like this? Well, surprisingly, no. They didn't pray any of that. At least we don't see any of that here in Acts 4. Instead, over the next seven verses in Acts 4, and what is the longest recorded prayer in the book of Acts, you know what we see the church there praying for? We see them praying for boldness and for courage. For boldness and for courage. Look at this prayer with me. We're starting in verse 24. We see this. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Now, at first glance, as we look at just the first part of this prayer, it it, it might seem that these words here, this part of the prayer is relatively insignificant, right? that it's just the intro and that there's not much going on here. So let's just hurry up and get through all this stuff so that we can get down to the the meat of it down in verse 29 where the church actually prays for boldness. Let's get to the good part. 
In fact, as I began my prep this week, that's kind of what I assumed I would do in teaching through this passage, that I would just kind of skip through the beginning parts and get down to the meat of it all. But honestly, as I, as I looked at this more closely and as I studied, I was blown away by these words. And I thought, man, there's just so much going on here. There's, there's so much meat right here in the beginning of this prayer. There's so much in here that could be helpful to us as we face crisis and challenges of all sorts of kind as well. This is so much more than an intro, I thought. Because notice what they're saying and, and what it is that they're doing as they pray here. First, they refer to God as their sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. Now, what's so significant about these words? What are they doing as they start their prayer in this way? By calling out to God as their sovereign Lord. Well, here's what they're doing. They are reminding themselves of God's complete and total control, his sovereignty both over the world and over their lives. And that while the Sanhedrin's threats were cause for significant concern and while their future was most certainly unclear as they no doubt knew that they were in for some tough days ahead with plenty of trial and tribulation and persecution as well, while all of that was very real in this moment and they knew it, as they prayed, they reminded themselves of this incredible, important truth that God, the creator of the universe, is sovereign over all and that therefore he is in control, doing something so much bigger and so much better than they could see or understand through the lens of their current circumstances. That's what they're doing here as they start their prayer. They're reminding themselves that God is in control. Now, I, I want to be clear because I imagine that this might raise some questions for some of us. When we say that God is sovereign over all and that he is in control in everything, does this mean that he controls everything that happens in the world? That God's the one behind everything that happens to us, bad things included? Is that what it means for God to be in control? No, not at all. Because listen, the reality is, is that we live in a fallen and sinful world where fallen and sinful people do fallen and sinful things. Things that are clearly outside of God's will and desire for the world and for our lives. And so in that sense, he doesn't control that, right? He doesn't control or cause evil and sinful, damaging things to happen to us or to others or to our world. That stuff is all a result of sin and evil in the fall. It is not God's doing. And so then, when we say that God is in control and that he is sovereign overall, what we're really saying is this. We're saying that nothing can stop God from doing what God wants to do. That's it. Nothing can stop God from doing what God wants to do. No sin, no evil, no threats, no government, no plans that we make that may be outside of God's will, no suffering, no pain, no divorce. No persecution, no mistakes that we make. Nothing can stop God from doing what God wants to do as somehow in his sovereignty, he takes everything that happens in the world, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he works to redeem it all, causing it to work together for the good of those who love and trust in Jesus and according to his purposes and plans for the world and for our lives. That, in a very high-level kind of way, is what it means for God to be in control, for him to be sovereign. Not that he controls everything that happens, but that in everything that happens, he's in control. And nothing can stop God from doing what God wants to do. 
and I realize that this probably raises some questions for many of you, and that's okay, but fundamentally, that's what we're talking about here when we talk about God being in control. Not that he controls everything that happens, but that in everything that happens, he's in control, and nothing can stop him from doing what he wants to do. And the early church here in this moment, they needed to remind themselves of this truth as they prayed, that God, the creator of everything that is, is sovereign over all. That he's in control, even when life feels like it's spinning out of control. And because of that, because of his sovereignty, they could trust him, no matter what happens. For us, sometimes we too need to remind ourselves of this truth, don't we? That God is bigger than our problems. And that even when our lives feel like they are spinning out of control, God's still in control and we can trust in him. Like, I don't know what your crisis or or issue is these days, whether it be a health issue, perhaps, or a mental health issue, or a parenting issue, or a marriage issue, or a financial issue, or whatever the issue may be. But what I do know is this. It's that God is in control. And nothing can stop God from doing what God wants him to do. And you, you might not be able to see what it is that he's trying to do. You might not be able to understand it all right now through the lens of your current circumstances. But I promise you, God is at work in it all. And in his sovereignty, he will redeem the pain and the suffering and the difficulty for his purposes and for our good as we look to him in it. Do you believe that? Because sometimes we need to remind ourselves of this, just as the early church did here as they started this prayer, that God was bigger than their problems. The other thing they did here, interestingly, as they started this prayer was they quoted scripture from Psalm 2, a Psalm of David. And now why did they do that? Did they think that maybe God forgot what it was that he said in there? Did they feel the need to remind him of what he said in scripture? No, of course not. You know what they needed? They needed to remind themselves. And specifically in this moment, they needed to remind themselves that scripture had talked about this very kind of thing happening with kings of the earth and rulers gathering together to battle against the Lord and his people and and his plan. Meaning that there was no reason for them to be surprised by any of this because God wasn't. And that just because this was happening, it, it didn't mean that God had abandoned them or forgotten them or that he'd lost the plot, but that actually this kind of stuff, the, the issue with the Sanhedrin, it had been foretold in scripture. And so there was no reason for them to be surprised by it or to think that God was no longer in control because it was right there for them in the pages, or in their case, I guess, the scroll of scripture. For us, this just highlights how critical it is that we think and pray through our circumstances and crises with scripture in mind. And I'm not necessarily talking about prophecy about the future or end times or anything like this, but about having the truth of God's word at the top of our minds as we pray. Because the reality is, is that sometimes we ask God for things that are simply not in alignment with his will as laid out in scripture. And sometimes we can treat God like a genie in the bottle, hoping that he'll grant us a wish when really we just aren't thinking or praying biblically about our issues. And so it's really important that we root ourselves in scripture, even as we pray through life's circumstances, reminding ourselves of God's truth in his written word to us as God uses scripture to ground us in him and his sovereign will. Continuing on, look at what they said or prayed next in verse 27, where we read this. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, 
Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything that they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Now, what are they saying here as they pray? Well, they're reminding themselves again of God's sovereignty, aren't they? But this time through the lens of their story, saying, hey, these men, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, and so on, they all thought that they were in control as they conspired against Jesus. But actually, in the end, it was God who was in control as his redemptive plan was for Jesus to go to the cross for the sins of the world all along. And he had planned and determined this all out long ago so that we could all be reconciled to God. They're reminding themselves here of the bigger picture and of God's sovereignty and his unfolding plan at work around them in this particular way through the story of Jesus. And you know, sometimes we need to do this too, don't we? We need to remind ourselves of the bigger picture and of our past and of our stories and of how God has provided for us in the past and how he's cared for us and how in his sovereignty, he's always made things work out in the mess of our lives, causing everything to come together for the good of those who love and trust him in accordance with his redemptive will for our lives. Because sometimes we forget these things and we need to be reminded. And so I wonder, uh, do you have spiritual memories like that? Do you have stories of God's faithfulness and of God's sovereignty in your life or maybe in the life of others close to you that you can remind yourself of? Remind yourself of these stories. Remind yourself of how he's been at work in your life in the past because as you do, it will build your faith just as it did for the early church here in Acts 4 as they prayed. Moving on, look now finally at their prayer for boldness in verse 29, as I referenced earlier, where after reminding themselves of God's sovereignty as the creator of the world, and after reminding themselves of what scripture says and choosing to think biblically and pray biblically about their current circumstance, and after reminding themselves of their story and of the bigger picture and of God's working in it all, they are now ready to pray this prayer, a prayer for boldness and for courage. Look at what they said in verse 29. And now, O Lord, hear their threats. Notice, not stop their threats or deliver or protect us from their threats, but hear their threats. Or in other words, use their threats in order to accomplish your purposes, which is quite the prayer. O Lord, hear their threats and give us, they say, your servants great boldness in preaching your word. There it is, right? This amazing prayer for boldness and courage in the face of crisis and even persecution. Not God, you know, make it all go away or God protect our families or God solve our problems, but God, in light of your sovereign plan, give us your courage. Fill us with spiritual a boldness, supernatural boldness as we preach and proclaim your word, knowing that as we do, we are actually inviting persecution and pain and suffering as a result. I mean, what a prayer. It reminds me actually of a story from the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which given that it's Black History Month is a great story, I think, to reflect on. We're in the middle of the Montgomery uh, bus boy uh, boycott, which was a famous boycott that took place in the mid-50s there in Alabama. Dr. King went to the Lord in prayer, 
And he asked God basically to give him courage in the midst of all the danger and chaos and violence that was taking place around him there in Montgomery because he didn't want to be a coward. And yet he was afraid and admitted later on in his journals that he went to bed many nights scared for his life and praying for courage. But then one morning after having prayed for courage, uh, Dr. King woke up and he heard a voice speaking to him, a voice from heaven, the voice of God. And here's what he heard God say to him. He heard these words, preach the gospel, stand up for truth, stand up for righteousness. Those are the words that he heard. Preach the gospel, stand up for truth, stand up for righteousness. And it was these words Dr. King later wrote in his journal that God used to bring him the courage and the boldness that he needed moving forward and that even prepared him for the possibility of martyrdom. Which is a pretty cool story, isn't it? It sounds very similar to the early church's story here in Acts 4, doesn't it? Where they prayed for boldness in the face of incredible danger. And it's not all that they prayed for here either. As they wrapped up their prayer with these words down in verse 30, they prayed this, Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. As they longed to have their ministry and their preaching verified by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in and through them as the church. And so they prayed, God, fill us with boldness as we preach and use us to do miraculous signs, miraculous things in your name so that people would know that what we're doing here is of you. That's their prayer here. Their amazing prayer. God, give us boldness and courage and use us in miraculous ways so that other people would know Jesus. And then finally, look at what happened next. Look at how this whole thing ended after they prayed. Verse 31, here's what happened. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, just like it did back in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and just like it did when uh, Moses was on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God met him there, which is amazing. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then listen, then they preached the word of God with boldness as they were so committed to the call of God on their lives and the, the mission of the church to live as spirit-filled witnesses in the world, that even though in many cases it would cost them their lives in faithfulness to Jesus and spirit-empowered boldness before God, they preached the word of God anyway. They preached about the grace and the mercy of Jesus anyway. They proclaimed the name of Jesus anyway, even though they had been told not to. It's an amazing prayer and an amazing example for us today, even though the challenges that we face in our life pale in comparison to what they endured. Like imagine what God could do in and through us as we pray and live this way too. You know, sometimes people will ask me why it is that God hasn't answered their prayer. Whether it be a prayer for healing or a prayer for a certain job or a prayer for something related to their kids or to their spouse, maybe praying that their spouse would come to faith or, or whatever their prayer may be. They want to know why is it that God hasn't answered my prayer yet? And honestly, it's an impossible question to answer because no one can fully know the mind of God and why it is that he does or doesn't answer certain prayers in the way that we would want him to answer them. It's a mystery to be sure. But if you want to pray a prayer, that God will always answer, this is it, isn't it? It's a prayer for courage 
and boldness in Christ. Whereas we take our eyes off of ourselves and of our own problems and of our own worries and concerns and devote ourselves instead to the mission of Jesus in the world, to his redemptive work in the world through his grace and his love, through the power of his Holy Spirit. And as we invite the Holy Spirit to empower us with his life, to equip us with his life and his power, with his boldness, he promises to give us everything we need to live this kind of courageous, bold life, the kind of courage that is needed to remain faithful to him and to not get too sucked in to the chaos and the problems and the concerns of life. I wonder, when's the last time you asked God for boldness and courage in the face of some difficulties and crisis? When's the last time you prayed like the early church prayed? Well, let's do that here now as we conclude, as we wrap up our time together. Let me pray for you uh, for courage and boldness in the face of whatever it is that you're facing. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we want to be a people, like the early church was, whose holy reflex is to pray. Not to depend on our own strength and ability to solve problems and figure things out, but to look to you. God, would you make us a praying people? Would you change our instincts, our reflexes, to make it one of prayer? And God, would you remind us of your sovereignty in the midst of our challenges and circumstances, that you are in control that you are always at work in the chaos and the mess of it all, doing what only you can do, bringing your redemptive power, your redemptive life to the messes of our life. And God, help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us look to Scripture in the midst of it all, not just to try to think about it from an earthly perspective always, but to look to Scripture, to the wisdom of your word, to the truth of your word, so that we can think biblically about our circumstances. And remind us, God, of, of our stories, of our past, and how you've been faithful in the past, how you've always been at work, how you've demonstrated your sovereignty to us in the past, so that we can trust you in the future. And God, as we do all those things, as we look to you in those ways, would you give us incredible courage and boldness in whatever it is that we're facing so that we can remain faithful to you. Give us your boldness, your courage to proclaim the good news of Jesus to our friends, to our family members, to those in our life who don't know you in word and deed. Uh, give us the courage not to shrink back or to be afraid, but to trust in you just as the early church did, just as Martin Luther King did. God, would we have that same kind of courage? Would your Holy Spirit come and fill us with your courage? And God, as we pray this prayer, we, we, we remember Jesus, the courage and the boldness that he had as he went to the cross on our behalf. That even though he wanted to shrink back, he didn't want to go to the cross. He asked you if there was any other way, you know, that he could get out of it, that he could avoid the cross. But in courage and boldness and obedience to you, he went to the cross on our behalf so that we could be saved and redeemed and made new. Fill us with that kind of courage no matter the cost, whether it means losing friendships, losing money, losing influence, losing even our lives potentially. Give us the courage that is needed to follow you faithfully and to proclaim Jesus. Uh, take our eyes off of our problems and put them back on you and how big and great you are. Fill us with your life and courage, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, 
Thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to the Gathering Ottawa's message podcast.